if I told you we finally come up with a, a magic pill that will improve memory and make your brain grow, everyone would want it. And if I told you it's free and you could do it with a friend and you only had to do it three times a week, people would say, sure, where do I get it? Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking Podcast. Please remember to subscribe and share with others. It makes a big difference for me and the channel. Today I've got Alan Castell, who's a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California in Los Angeles. He studies learning, memory, and aging, and is interested in how people can selectively remember important information. His new book is on Better With Age, The Psychology of Successful Aging, and he talks today about how you and I can do some practical things to improve our memory, and more so, live better lives as we get older. It's absolutely fantastic to hear um, Alan's viewpoints and his studies that have come out of his lab. I'm sure you're gonna love it. Welcome back to Better Thinking Podcast. Today's guest is Professor Alan Castell, who is from the Department of Psychology in the University of California in Los Angeles, um, and he studies learning, memory, and aging, and, and many other things. He's got a fascinating new book that's come out recently, Better With Age, The Psychology of Successful Aging. Um, really excited to talk about this because this is you know a little bit of an area that i'm starting to move into into aging that sort of plus 40 zone um so welcome to the show professor thank you it's great to be here is it okay if i uh, just call you alan in, in, instead uh, absolutely please do lovely lovely tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested into this area um you know where this kind of book has come come from and uh you know all the work that you've done in this space certainly well i'm a professor at ucla and i study memory and aging and as a younger child i spent a lot of time with my grandparents my older grandparents and i noticed that their memory was changing they confused my name with my brother's name um, but I also noticed they're very good at remembering certain things very well, especially the prices of groceries they recently purchased. So it's clear that memory changes in a variety of ways. And I was always impressed with their sense of humor, how they became less inhibited as they <laughs> became older. So they would tell me amazing stories. And, you know, I think I developed some positive um, impressions of what it means to grow old, even though I was aware that they also had some challenges in their life. So I think from there that led me down this road of, you know, trying to understand and appreciate how we get older. It's an incredible space because I've started to notice uh, a family member of mine in particular struggling with some aspects of memory. But the one thing that uh, uh, he holds is is this incredible capacity for dates. You know that that go back to, you know the, you know. 60s, the, the you know, 80s, uh, knowledge about, you know, things that he's read about, you know, the 20s uh, and, and so on. It's, it's this incredible thing about dates and, and, and times, but in other things, obviously, you know, with, with, with age, um, you know, maybe the short-term memory stores are, are starting to struggle. Uh, it's just become such a pronounced thing that I've started to, uh, you know, be aware of, so I can appreciate that. 
I think we all start to notice how our memory changes, especially when it starts failing us. Um, and there certainly are things that we are good at. Some people are very good at remembering faces or dates, but struggle with names or forget a simple to-do list. And I think that illustrates just how memory works and how memory doesn't work. Memory's not like a video camera. We can't always trust it, nor should we, even when we're younger. And uh, one point I make in the book is as we get older, we're probably more selective about how we use our memory and maybe even more thoughtful that we know we can't remember things that are not of real interest to us. We might remember trivia that's interesting to us. We might forget the names of people we've met recently, even though we remember their profession or where we know them from. And that doesn't necessarily mean we have dementia. <laughs> it, it probably just means that our memory is working in a way that, you know, it'll, it'll tend to work like as we get older. And uh, there are things we can do to improve our memory, but we shouldn't expect to have a perfect memory. What are some of the myths? Obviously, there's this kind of idea that as you are, as you age, you know, your memory just gets worse, you know, and uh, it's, it's almost like this, the idea is it's just about decline, decline, decline. What are some of the myths around, you know, memory and aging? Well, there are certainly some truth to memory starting to change with age, but to call them all declines is not accurate because some things do decline. It might be harder to remember certain things because you have more names in your brain. So there's just more interference, there's more confusion, but some things certainly also get better with age. Um, many older adults report high levels of life satisfaction, even if they're struggling physically or um, have challenges with their memory. So Older adults might have more confidence about oneself, such as greater self-esteem, um, better emotion regulation, uh, and are more interested in pursuing their own passions and less concerned about what other people think. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of space. Being a psychologist, you know, this, this emotional regulation, not caring about what people think is, you know, really kind of big ticks when it comes to mental health, at least from my perspective. Um, it, it seems to come with, you know, maybe this word that we use as, you know, maturity, um, but maybe there's a memory component in there, in there too about, you know, how, how one selectively kind of views the world or, or how they use their memory. Um, is there any sort of uh, connections of data in that space? Well, I think people look back on their lives and realize that maybe they've forgotten certain things or maybe they've encountered challenges in life, but some things matter and some things don't. <laughs> and it certainly does matter what other people think of us. So it's not like we just don't care anymore, but we know, you know, not to sweat the small things and we know what's important to us. Sometimes that means having you know, friends, face-to-face -face meetings, as opposed to having a lot of Facebook friends. There's certainly differences there. And I think as we get older, we become more appreciative of the things that are important to us, whether it's friends, family, bird watching, curiosity, whatever you're into, and care less about the things that we might have worried about when we were younger, but realize we either don't have much control over or it doesn't really matter as much as we thought. There's uh, very much some some uh, something to say about curiosity and in, in in memory, you know. Having looked at some of your work prior to to this podcast, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about about that. It's kind of, I suppose, fascinated me because I was I've never been a great great academic by any means, but I I remember um, in college I was I was asked in college in Australia year year eleven and twelve, uh, I was asked to do a presentation and. Uh, 
not being a, an academic, I wasn't kind of uh, participating very much, but I could very easily do a presentation on uh, a rotary engine or a, or a Wankel engine at the time. And I, I still have, you know, uh, data in my head that, uh, you know, Felix Wankel was the originator um, who created the concept in 1957. He built the first Wankel engine, all this sort of arbitrary information. And I'm not someone who prides myself on, on you know, random information, but it was something I was very curious because I was, you know, a young boy, liked, you know, uh, loud engines and, and fast cars and, you know, the, the Wankel engine or the, you know, we call a rotary engine was, was a, you know, a tough engine. And so I, I kind of knew all the aspects about it. There was this curiosity that drew me to it. But if you brought me into a physics class, um, uh, I would kind of, you know, just switch off, so to speak. Um, there, there's sure. this kind of curiosity component. Yeah, and I think it, you know, we're only going to remember things that we have some um, organizational framework to put things into place. So I think whether it's bird watching or engines or stamp collecting, you name it, to one person it can be very arbitrary, dry, and boring, but to someone else it can be phenomenally interesting. And sometimes it has to do with your background. It might have to do with your motivations at the time, which change with age. And we've tried to study it by looking at curiosity, like what sorts of things spark your curiosity. And for you, it might be engines. For me, it might be bikes. For a young child, it might be, you know, whatever toy gun they have. Um, And whether you can scaffold new learning based on what you know already. So it's unfortunate that you know all about these engines and the history and how they work, but then you walk into a physics class and everything seems dry and boring. And if you could somehow, or the teacher or the book somehow incorporates some of the, that practical learning with some of the theory, then it leads to these kind of breakthroughs. And we found that older adults, especially as we get older, we're more inclined to remember things we're curious about. Um, and less inclined to focus on things we don't care about. And I, I think that's an important life lesson because if we can't remember everything, it makes more sense to focus on the things that we really want to learn more about. So we did a study where we asked people um, questions like, uh, what was the first product to have a barcode? And I, I want you to guess, but I also want you to tell me how curious you are to learn the answer. Um, so I'll let you play along. What do you think the first product was to have a barcode? When I heard that question first, uh, the answer was, I have no idea. Um, but I did think to myself, will I actually ever remember this? Um, and I have remembered it, but I'm not a curiosity person, but that's probably because it's a recency effect. But uh, I would say I have no idea. And now how curious are you to learn? You might be I'm, very I'm not. Uh, for, for You're not. And, that, not. And, that, and that's a really good predictor of how likely you'll remember the answer a week from now. So I'll tell you the answer is Wrigley's chewing gum. And you might think, okay, great, that's a little factoid. I'll probably never need to know, and I, I really don't care. Um, how about which country was the first country to give women the right to vote? And, and that one I'll definitely remember, and the reason why is being in Australia, yes. we're very, very much um, always in competition with our neighbours, New Zealand. Of course. Uh, heard that I had a scaffold, which is what you're talking about, a, a memory yeah. scaffold. Um, and I'm like, damn it, they got to it before us. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so that's your competitive spirit kicking in, but it, it also your geography or your awareness or something. These are questions most people don't know the answer to, but I think in this case, 
either you're interested in history or politics or just the geography that, you know, leads you to, you know, both guess the answer and get it correct. And older adults are more likely to remember the things they're most curious about. And they're also more likely to forget the things they're least curious about. And I think that's important as we get older is kind of focusing on what we care about and not sweating the other things, forgetting the other things. Um, and it's unfortunate because when we're a student, we're expected to pack our brains with a lot of information. Um, but I think it's almost like a museum curator that as we get older, we kind of make sure our museum, which might be very cluttered in our mind, is kind of kept clean in terms of, you know, recalling the things we're most curious about and we care the most about and letting the other stuff kind of gather dust. It almost seems that there is a natural advantage to that or maybe we've structured our our society in that way where we ask you know older persons who are maybe you know more emotionally stable um you know who have a a greater capacity to to select um you know their focus and and maybe only attend to certain things rather than be overwhelmed with so much other data to maybe inform policies and other other things that are quite quite complex and the younger people and we sit at universities and just pack our brains with, with you know, anything and everything. Uh, I'm not sure. Is, it, is well, there a I biological think, story to, to, to some of this? I think it's an important question is what is knowledge? What is creativity? And who do we turn to for advice? And typically we turn to people who have experience. And oftentimes that is older people, but sometimes it's a younger person who's more experienced with Instagram. Um, but it could be an older person who's more experienced because they've seen more mistakes, they've made more mistakes, so they know how to handle kind of a complex problem or social situation, or sometimes knowing that there isn't an immediate answer is, is a good bit of insight. But we've certainly found that, you know, under some conditions, older adults, in fact, may be more creative because they're less inhibited. They'll consider multiple perspectives. They'll realize that there's not one right answer. Whereas when we're younger, we're kind of searching for the right answer. How can we move on quickly? and might not appreciate how complex the world can be. So there's a creativity component that comes with, with, with this as, as, as well. What, how do we define creativity or what, what's the idea around creativity? How, how would you describe that? Well, creativity involves being able to solve problems, sometimes have insights that others might not have, and often involves drawing on prior experiences, even though we think of creativity as these like sudden bursts of insight. But the truth is a lot of creative inventions are modeled or based on other inventions or other things we have experience with. So just by virtue of having more experience, older adults have more to draw on, which can lead to you know, good insight, innovation, and sometimes not being afraid to kind of push the envelope a little bit or, you know, try something new. And those are not things you typically think of like, oh, if I want creativity, I turn to the younger generation. But in fact, there's a lot to be learned from older adults who've experienced things, made mistakes, seen how things work and don't work, and, uh, you know, are not afraid to suggest or even try new things. It's kind of interesting because sometimes we look to our younger generation to push the envelope that uh, in some sense they're not burdened by beliefs or limiting beliefs. They might become, you know, uh, virtuous around uh, and, and potentially even righteous around some certain ideas and so they, they push the boundaries and, and maybe we don't see that as much with, with, with some older persons. It, is that kind of how our memory also influences 
influences us where there can be those limiting factors around what I can conceive or how open-minded I, I, I might be. Um, that, does that have any sort of impact over the, the, the age sort of range? It certainly can. And, you know, I think as we get older, we certainly fall into habits and routines. These are things that we enjoy, appreciate. We go to the same restaurants. We you know, do things the same way because it works. Um, and sometimes those habits and routines, the structure, that might lead to greater happiness or stability as we get older, whereas younger people might have less of that. And, they, you know, they don't know what they're doing tomorrow or um, and I think that can lead to a different approach, um, but I think it's also important to realize that we, we need to be flexible in terms of our thinking. So just because we've done something one way doesn't mean that's the only way to do it. And I, I illustrate this in my book, um, talking about um, you know, a, a, a pilot who has to land an airplane in an emergency scenario. All the engines have gone out. He's just taken off from the airport. And he can either turn back to the airport and land the plane, attempt to land the plane, even though he's gliding, or he can do an emergency landing on the Hudson River, you know, a water landing, which no one's ever done before. Um, you know, what do you do? And if you're a younger pilot, you have fast reaction times, you know, you have a good memory. Whereas if you're an older pilot, not that you have more experience landing planes on water, but you might be more likely to understand some of the concepts that are relevant. And this is what happened, you know, with Captain Sully Sullenberger, who was able to land a plane on water, first time it's ever done, uh, and save all these people, even though he was taking enormous risks and involved kind of a leap of faith and a form of creativity. So even if we have these habits and routines, and you might expect just with more experience, you're better at doing things. This was a novel situation and it required kind of some creative problem solving. And under those circumstances, maybe you do want an older pilot who's able to kind of handle and regulate their emotions so that they can carry out a very unique and uh, life-saving um, procedure. I do remember um, that story, but I, I don't know any of the details. Have you heard of um, the, the the pilot's sort of accounts, his thought process, how how he, you know, um, described that situation and that decision making sort of process? How how he sort of I suppose brought in his training experience. It was you know it was, there's a great movie if you're interested in the Hollywood version called Sully, um, but there's there's certainly a few accounts and he describes how you know while this was very stressful he had to make some quick decisions he had a co-pilot that he you know I wouldn't say consulted but they worked together a younger co-pilot but he had to make this decision and he had to eventually make it fairly quickly and he described it as kind of he had made a lot of investments into his bank of experiences with all the training he's had in the past. And now he was making one giant withdrawal where he was now taking everything that he'd learned and now he's going to synthesize it and understand the physics and how he, he could in fact land a plane on water, even though it's something he'd never done before. And a lot of people just assume, Oh, if you're older, you have more experience and more knowledge and that's what makes you better. But in this case, he'd never done this. He, you really have to use all of that knowledge in a practical way to solve a problem. And uh, I think it also involves emotional regulation that you could get very stressed having to decide and make this decision. And uh, he had to use his skill and courage. And I, I think of it as like high pressure creativity to do something that no one had ever done before. 
Yeah, wow. So this this really isn't him being able to draw an experience because he doesn't have experience of landing a plane on water, you know, 35 times in practice. Uh, this is his first attempt and, and it's it's the conceptual, I suppose, the, the understanding, maybe if we even talk about it from a curiosity perspective of how the physics are working and, and how a plane is designed and um, how to slow it down as much as possible without having, you know, thrust and God knows what was also being involved in all of that. This is just my uh, clumsy account of uh, trying to put something together. Um, but he, he used just knowledge to, to synthesize all of that and come up with an idea to, to um, test for the first time. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're not all captains of airplanes, but just the fact that you have knowledge on how engines work, if your car breaks down tomorrow and you're in the middle of the desert, um, you'd have some ideas as to how you might be able to fix things in a pinch. And I think you might think of older people as being more set in their ways or, you know, they have knowledge, but, you know, they might be clumsy with a computer. The truth is an older mind has solved a lot of problems and seen a lot of, you know, mistakes as well. So I think there's, you don't want to say benefits to getting older, but there, there may be benefits to kind of having an older person working with a younger person and just noticing the different styles, because I think it's almost like you can use both to their maximum potential. And I think we should think of aging as in terms of changes and abilities, not declines. I love that concept. And you've already said it a couple of times that, uh, you know, this isn't uh, a measurement of, of of decline or one being better or worse, but rather saying how does an aging mind, you know, work and operate and, and what benefits are in there? You know, what's what are the changes from, uh, you know, a, a younger mind to an older mind? Um, what are the, the primary things that you have, um, you know, studied in, in, in your lab and, and, you know, that, that's featured in your book. What, what, what are some of the kind of our takeaways, uh, you know, in, in all of your studies, you know, if we synthesize a little bit of that too? Our lab studies memory and how it becomes selective as we get older. And I think one takeaway is that even if we might not remember as much as we used to, older adults can selectively remember what's important. And that could be different things. It could be what you're curious about, it could be if you're taking care of a child, remembering the allergies that the child might have. It's almost like being responsible in your remembering. Whereas when we're younger, we kind of remember lots of stuff, the lyrics to songs, you know, the phone number of a friend, all of these things. But what are the things we really need to know? And I think that's what we call metacognition, is being aware of how our memory changes, both declines, but also compensation and how older adults can use that to, to function actually fairly efficiently. Um, so we're really interested in what sorts of things older adults can remember, how older adults do this, and some of the, the activities we can do as we get older, um, and I can talk about those, that can ensure that we keep our brains sharp. Maybe you can kind of uh, go into that space about what, what are the the uh, contributors to you know a sharper mind, you know, what are the things that we can go out and, and do to, you know, uh, optimize, so, so to speak, whatever where our natural range is at. So, you know, if, if that's the right language, how do we Yeah, optimize? absolutely. People often think, you know, to keep a, your brain sharp, you should do crossword puzzles or things that are stimulating. And there may be some truth to that, but there's not a lot of solid research that would support 
crossword puzzles in particular, because as we get older, our verbal knowledge and um, vocabulary actually improves with age. Sometimes, you know, you have the tip of the tongue effect where you can't remember something you know you know, but that's just because there's a lot in there. Um, so I think, you know, crossword puzzles are not something that we need to do to stay sharp. Um, but maintaining an active lifestyle is really important. And that doesn't just mean rushing around doing lots of things. It means selecting the things you're interested in doing and try and improve, whether it's piano, gardening, socializing. Um, an active lifestyle could and should also involve some level of physical activity, such as walking, biking, dancing, and social connections, meeting friends, um, professional colleagues, and then cognitive stimulation, whether it's reading, listening to music, traveling. Uh, many people say they feel that retirement allows them uh, more time to do the things they really want to do without the stress of a packed schedule doing the things they don't enjoy. So I think it's important to have an active lifestyle, a stimulating lifestyle. And when I, people ask about what can I do to keep my memory sharp, I tell them, you know, the best research out there has shown that physical exercise, such as walking, improves memory more so than any other, you know, form of cognitive stimulation. And there's, there's not much out there that we can do um, that benefits memory more than walking. And this is based on a very, you know, solid line of research that has shown, in one case, they had two groups of individuals over the age of 60. One group they randomly assigned to walk three times a week. <clears throat> Uh, for 40 minutes, and the other group uh, stretched. So they're not doing as much cardiovascular activity, but they're stretching their muscle three times a week for 40 minutes. And they followed up with the, these groups, you know, six months later and a year later, and they found the walking group performed much better on various tests of memory and cognition compared to the stretching group. And then they did some neuroimaging. So they looked at the parts of the brain that were really involved in memory, and this is typically the hippocampus. It's right in the, the center of the brain. And the hippocampus declines by about 1% in volume every year after the age of 50. So your brain you know, starts to shrink and that leads to these declines in memory. But what they found in the walking group is that the hippocampus, the volume had actually increased by 2% over that one year period. So literally your brain is growing, you're reversing these signs of aging. And that's amazing. I mean, it shows that you know, the, our physical, you know, output can make our brain grow or at least offset some of the changes that might happen with age. And so I think these findings are very exciting. They've been replicated in many different ways. There's nothing specific about walking. Um, you know, if you're biking, swimming, dancing, anything that gets your heart rate up and gets more blood to your brain probably leads to these effects because it's cleaning out the brain. It's pro providing the brain with the nourishment it needs. And uh, I think these effects are really important because if I told you we finally come up with a, a magic pill that will improve memory and make your brain grow, everyone would want it. And if I told you it's free and you could do it with a friend and you only had to do it three times a week, people would say, sure, where do I get it? And the truth is you can get it, you know, anywhere, anytime, anyplace. You can do it on a treadmill. Some of these studies are done with mall walkers who get up early in the morning and go to the shopping mall because it's snowing outside. Um, and there can be a social aspect to it, walking with a friend. Maybe if you have a partner who will motivate you to walk, that can be helpful. So I think it's really impressive because it shows that there's a lot we can do to improve our memory and it's not 
quite as we might expect. It's not just doing crossword puzzles. That's absolutely remarkable. A 2% increase over a 12 12 month period just walking you know that's kind of a you know if, if you had that pill you'd probably get in the nobel peace prize saying you know you, you've achieved you know a lifetime of of, of you know uh, amazing you know medical advancement and yet we, we've got it available to us yeah and i think we always have had it available i think our lifestyle leads to a more sedentary approach i'm sitting down right now um, I think a lot, there's a lot of brain games on the market that involve more screen time, you know, sitting in front of a computer playing these games. And the truth is those games are very um, addictive. They're fun to play and you do get better at those games and they might change your brain in some way, but they don't lead to what we call transfer, meaning they don't change your brain in a way that allows you to remember things like where you put your keys or the name of your colleague. So you're not improving the types of memory that you really care about. And if anything, I think there's a cost because now you're spending more time in front of a screen, less time for walking, and then you know there, there's that decline that if you're not walking, your memory starts to change. And really, I think, you know, when, when we all consider memory, we, we, we want to know about it. How does it functionally improve our life? Not, uh, you know, am I advancing right. on some arbitrary, you know, screen as to how many things I can remember or something. I, at the end of the day, I, I need to know where my keys are um, and not score, I don't know, 120 on that, you know, level four of that game. Um, it doesn't change anything for for me. How did the crossword puzzle, you know, the Secudo puzzle type um, uh, idea come about to kind of uh, sort of uh, say that, you know, this is, I mean, in some sense, you know, it's quoted quite often, you know, is a, is a great tool for improving your memory, you know, like, you know, you've got to keep, keep your, your mind, you've got to keep flexing your mind, you know, pushing it, doing crosswords or whatever it is. Where, how did that become popular? I think it's intuitive that if you want to keep your brain sharp, you should keep it active. And, and that is true. But crossword puzzles are so specific, you know, whether it's math, any, anything that keeps your brain working is a good thing. But the truth is those effects might be quite small or they might be specific. And I always tell people that there's probably not one thing you should do to keep your memory sharp. There's many things. So, you know, stay active socially, you know, do crossword puzzles, do any type of puzzle anything that's challenging, learning a new language, traveling. Um, and then I think probably people think of the brain as, you know, a muscle, so you need to exercise it. But physical exercise brings a lot of blood to the brain and involves a lot of coordination as well. So I think, you know, this mind-body connection is important. People think of the mind as the mind, but it is connected to your body and there's an intimate relationship there. And the other thing I tell people is that even though you're concerned about your memory, probably what you should be more concerned about is balance. Because as we get older, especially after the age of 60, we're more likely to suffer from a fall. In fact, in the US, people over the age of 60, one in three people will, will suffer a fall that results in a broken hip, a broken collarbone. And if you fall, you're going to be out of commission for a couple of weeks or months even, and then you're not walking. And if you're not walking, we know your hippocampus is going to shrink even more. Your memory starts to decline. So it's really a, a cascade. And so being, just staying on your feet is really important. And some of the things I tell people to train balance are very simple. Standing on one leg for 30 seconds, seeing if you can do it. And a lot of people think their balance is fine. They haven't had a fall. 
But then they realize when they try this very simple exercise, they, they start to stumble after five or 10 seconds. And imagine if you're getting out of bed in the middle of the night, you have to use the bathroom and it's dark and you trip over a carpet and you have to like, regain your balance. If you don't have good balance and you're not aware of it, you'll fall. So I think balance training is important, staying on your feet, staying active, and, and that'll keep your memory sharp. Um, whereas things like you know brain games and crossword puzzles make, make you think that you're doing the right thing. And there's certainly some merits to them, but there, there's not, that's not the only thing you should be doing. And it makes a lot of sense because if I were to say I'm going to get really, really fit, so I'm just going to go out and, uh, you know, do a lot of exercise on one bicep and I'll just do that over and over and over and over and over and over again, I might get pretty damn good with one bicep and I might have a, a fairly impressive bicep, but the rest of my body is certainly not fit. Um, and, and, and what you're kind of suggesting is that purely activity um, you know, by by the function of blood flow and, you know, allowing the the biological world to, to do its thing, to flush out the brain of toxins and whatever else rubbish, you know, is in there and just stimulate, I suppose, good flow of oxygen and the like. Um, it, it, it rebounds as a whole rather than as a one bicep type scenario. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And I think that, you know, by focusing so specifically, you might even lead to this wear and tear. Some people think, you know, jogging, but jogging over long periods of time can hurt your knees. So it's good to have diversity in terms of what you do. Um, everything's connected in a, in a way. And I think this idea that physical exercise, you know, why would it benefit your brain could be multifaceted. It probably, if you exercise during the day, then you're going to sleep better at night. Um, and one thing that does tend to decline as we get older is our quality of sleep. We might spend more time sleeping, but we don't get the, the, the deeper levels and REM sleep that we, you know, used to in terms of the, the amount of minutes. But if you're getting some physical exercise, you're more likely to sleep well. So, you know, if you sleep well, we know sleep is related to the consolidation of memories. So all of these things are connected, and I, I think um, it's important to lead this kind of balanced life where it, your diet should be balanced. There's not one thing you need to eat. It's not all about blueberries. It's not all red wine or chocolate. It's probably a collection of things, and we need to focus on the effect size. Like you said, you know, what is clinically significant or important to us because you know, doing crossword puzzles might help for some things, but I think walking or balance training can really keep you on your feet. And that's kind of what you need to be doing when you're 60, 70, 80. And these are habits. So starting them early in life when you're 20, 30, 40 can be very important. But also knowing you might have to change things. If you've played racquetball or squash, you might not be playing these games when you're 60 or 70. So do you have a, you know, a group of friends you can walk with or play golf or ping pong or any activity that keeps you active? You mentioned a couple of times, or at least this is how I interpret it, about uh, being active uh, also meaning learning something or stretching yourself, trying to develop a skill where there's kind of an acquisition of, of um, a skill set. Uh, am I reading that correctly, that that, that, that has um, you know, re reasonable merit, uh, that when you're trying to learn something new, it somehow, you know, I don't know, stimulates better, better um, all-round memory or, you know, cognitive capacity? 
Certainly, we're still making neurons and connections as we get older, and those things are stimulated by challenging yourself. So, you know, it's good to try new things. It's good to speak to people who share a different opinion. Um, it doesn't mean you need to learn Japanese. <laughs> you know, a lot of people think it's about learning a second or third language. You know, there's definitely ways you can stimulate your mind and your body that can allow for this neurogenesis. And I think it's important, but we also fall into our habits of doing the same thing every day, being around the same people. So things like traveling or anything that involves novelty can be both challenging but rewarding for your brain. So even like intellectual um, debates or stimulating ideas. I was Last night I was watching a, a uh, debate by, uh, I think it was Richard Dawkins and uh, Deepak Chopra, and they were, uh, it looked like they were sparring, so to speak, but it was, you know, each time either, either one of them opened up their mouth, you'd side with them, you go, that's a really intelligent argument. And then the other one would come across, you go, oh, gosh, that's really kind of sounds intelligent too. And they'd just be going backwards and forwards, and it was incredibly intriguing, like an hour and a half of, of just this intensity. Um, is that something that, that I suppose curiosity comes about is maybe another feature there as well. Um, but is it kind of like being, um, trying to stretch your mind, even if it's, um, just purely on, on holding different ideas? Absolutely. I think having some variety, trying new things, being around people who share your opinion, but also disagree with you, um, doing something challenging, something that you wouldn't normally do, can be very stimulating and rewarding, but it can also be, you know, intimidating. So I think a lot of us get stuck in a rut. We keep doing what we keep doing, and in some ways that can be beneficial, but it's good to try something new, even if it's just trying a different ice cream flavor, <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, talking to people who you might not normally talk to, volunteer, try something, you know, that you haven't done before, even if you know you're not going to be skilled at it or an expert, it, you know, it challenges your brain and it makes sure that you, you don't get caught in these, you know, routines. Great. Can you talk a little bit about this world of, uh, you know, Alzheimer's or the world of d dementia, you know, moving into, I suppose, that older age? That's a place that I think a lot of people, including myself, uh, are... Um, really in the dark around you know we, we don't really understand it too much uh, you know we we tend to probably just grab little bits and pieces of, of information around pack them together with, with without any you know real knowledge about it can you talk about those uh, and i know there's some similarities some overlap in those two but there's also you know differences too um yeah, certainly. I think a lot of us are in the dark about what dementia and alzheimer's disease really mean and and how it you know what is the cause and what is the cure? The number of people who have Alzheimer's disease, which is one form of dementia, it's the most common, is projected to rise, but that might be because we're just living longer. And if we're living longer, we want to add years to our life, not just um, you know a time in life where we can't function well. So some studies show that there actually is a decline in the proportion of people who are developing Alzheimer's disease compared to a few decades ago, which I think is very interesting. And one hypothesis or idea is that um, higher levels of education and doing things that uh, can prevent or delay the disease, such as walking, as I mentioned, or eating better, being socially connected, might allow us to kind of prevent this disease from setting in. Because once you do have these, you know, 
plaques and tangles and all other signs, it's very hard to reverse the disease. So I'm not sure. It, it sounds awful to say they might never be a cure, but there could also be a way that we can prevent this before it happens. And a lot of these things are things that we might know about already, or we're just not doing enough of it. Um, we're not aware that walking and physical exercise are not just so we can stay slim or keep our heart healthy. It might really keep our brain healthy. And uh, what we do earlier in our lives and the habits we develop can protect us from developing dementia in older age. And just to give you an example, this is again a correlation, but there is some work showing that if you speak more than one language, you're less likely to develop dementia. And the idea is that if you have multiple languages in your brain, you're you're inhibiting one language, you're activating another, you're doing more of this mental gymnastics. Um, and that could be beneficial in terms of keeping your brain sharp. And again, it's a correlation, but there could be benefits to learning a language both early in life or even later in life. So that sort of stimulation might, might be important and might actually protect us from you know, some of the things that can happen in dementia. Hvala, baš mi je drago da znam. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, I just say thank you. It's good to, you know, it feels good to to, to know that. Um, it's fascinating. Good, keep practicing. That's uh, that's quite incredible. It's probably a gift that uh, my parents didn't even didn't even realize that they they they're giving me. Um, sure. You know, we speak sort of uh, a Serbian in, in in the household. Um, you know, when we visit each other, speak with each other. Um, yeah. I didn't realize that um, it's a protective mechanism too. There can certainly be benefits. Again, it's a correlation. We don't know what causes sure. what, um, and it's hard to experimentally test. And you also might find, which is some insight, that as you get older, you revert back to your mother tongue or your first language. Or I've seen people, including my grandparents who had dementia, and they started to almost forget their English and go back to their first language or if you're stressed or under pressure, you kind of focus on your first language that you're more accustomed to or more familiar with. So it might be that languages just give you more layers to work with. And as you develop dementia, it might eat away at certain layers, but the more protective layers you have, the longer you can fight off this disease. And language must take an awful lot of, uh, uh, I'm not sure if this is the right word, but space, you know, the complexity of language must, must overlay so many things, you know, the way that we not only speak and communicate, but the way we interpret, the way that we, you know, um, perceive the world, you know, that, that there are words that you find in one language that you don't in another, um, the way that you, I suppose, convert one language into another in translation. There, there must be just a huge uh, need for, you know, hardware, additional hardware or, or um, at least use of, of memory that maybe stimulates, uh, you know, many repetitions as a course of an everyday type of experience if you've got, you know, two or more, more languages. Um, I mean, maybe that's just a fantasy story, but uh, it, it seems that, that just talking talking with you at the moment that, that um, it, it is potentially just more processing going on um, than if you only have one language. It's possible. I think, you know, the brain is an amazing thing. And even though there are parts of the brain that are very involved in language, the truth is most things are distributed all over your brain and inside and ways that can change how you process things. So, you know, if you speak multiple languages, you might have different sorts of spatial skills than someone who doesn't speak 
moral languages, you might think of things in different ways, not necessarily better or worse. Um, so I think it just adds another component. And I don't think it's specific to language. If you have some special skill, if you're a pianist, if whatever you do, it adds to kind of the cognitive reserve that can build up in your brain. And the more the more access you have to these skills, the the more you can really challenge yourself in ways that can be helpful. Yeah, can you also talk a little bit about, you mentioned the social aspect. Um, I, I suppose the the opposite of uh, being socially connected is loneliness or, or you know, um, uh, you know, sort of disconnection uh, that you know, often often comes with depression in, 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 in the psychology world. Can you talk about uh, any research that, that, that connects loneliness or social connect- connectivity with memory? Certainly. There's, I mean, it's the scariest part about getting older is uh, that many people don't realize when they retire or move, they leave behind a large social network. And a lot of older adults, even though we think of, you know, the research shows that a lot of older adults have high levels of life satisfaction or even happiness, they will comment that the saddest and hardest thing is that their friends are, are passing away. So there's just fewer people around. Um, and so I think the same thing can happen when you retire or move away from a, a city that you're very familiar with. Uh, you leave behind these social interactions that can be protective in a way. And even just occasional small talk at our workplace uh, can be an important part of being socially connected. People notice when things change, if they see you every day, if you're going to the coffee shop every day. And I think there's some stigma associated with saying you're lonely. So people don't necessarily talk about it and it makes it a silent issue. And uh, being around family, friends, even pets can help, but often people need to have regular social interactions that make them feel valued or understood, and sometimes just volunteering, going to a, a group exercise class, you know, going to the library regularly where you have some small conversations can be a great way to stay connected. It's really fascinating because I, I don't know whether my my attention is becoming more and more selective or my curiosity has peaked in a certain space, but I just see this social connection within you know mental health as being as jumping out everywhere. That uh, you know today we're talking about memory improving with social connection. You know when we talk about drug addiction, you know with work such as you know Johan Hari's work around you know bonding, social connectivity is is such mm-hmm. an important part of, uh, uh, I suppose, protection against, um, you know, going further into, um, you know, drug abuse, alcohol abuse and, and the like, you know, speaking with, with clients, you know, connectivity is such an important part in, in how they, I suppose, prognosis, how, 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 how likely they are to recover from, you know, despair and difficult situations, that, that this, this social thing plays such an important role and and here it is again in memory no absolutely i think we think of the biology of aging we we notice aches and pains and we talk about you know how our body changes but the truth is the people who are around every day influence how we feel and it's whether it's a spouse a friend colleagues these are the people that really make a difference in our life and sometimes we're not aware of it. And it's actually, especially it differs for men and women, but often, you know, men, when they retire or leave the workforce, 
suffer a major you know hit in terms of their social connections and um you know it's hard to then look for friends or you know join a group but that that can be very important especially for someone who's very connected or was connected to their profession for a long period of time and i think these social connections are undervalued i think in a day and age where we can jump on email or facebook we can certainly connect with people but it's the quality of those connections it's not necessarily how frequently you're you know chatting with people online or whether you have hundreds of facebook friends it's the quality of these relationships you know are these people aware of your health and what you're thinking of and your worries and your concerns whereas a lot of you know social network or facebook you're kind of broadcasting all the great things that are happening to you and it's not a fair assessment of you know what's really going on in your life so having some of that real face to face contact is very important and what happens uh, if if you're able to explain what happens with depression and 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 memory a day does not go by in my work in the clinic here where a client doesn't talk about you know their memory failing them particularly you know the the more depressed someone um, becomes is is there a is there any research that talks about the bi- the biological aspects of of that is it, is it simply that our um, you know as, as the word suggests everything becomes depressed you know uh, where you know even even our brain slows down that that, that you know or is it an intentional thing is it a I don't I've got despair I don't care about encoding anything because nothing you know, bloody matters. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm probably not going to be around. So who gives a shit? You, you certainly have more experience seeing it at the front lines. I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I think depression and anxiety can certainly kind of overcome a lot of these effects that are important that allow us to remember things effectively. Sometimes they can, it can influence depression, anxiety can influence sleep. It can lead to fewer social connections um, maybe less exercise. So there's a lot of things we can do, but we might not be inclined to do if we're depressed or anxious or don't want to be around people or we're avoiding things. And so in some ways, it's not surprising that memory would take a hit given all the things we've talked about that improve memory might you know, become harder to engage, such as physical exercise, social connection, getting good sleep. So I think, you know, dealing with the the underlying issues that lead to depression and anxiety could then eventually lead to memory improvements, but it's it's very challenging. Mm-hmm. What can I expect that, that that that's going to improve or 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 sharpen as I get older? You know, what what are some of the advantages that um uh you know might might occur between, you know, 40 to 60, 60 to 70, um, you know, what, you know, when we talk about change, you know, with change, we, we might sort of look at how do I optimize, um, you know, these, these, these benefits of change, you know, that, that every, every situation can, can be, um, you know, utilized in a particular way. What can I expect will occur? Um, you know, for me, I'm about to tip into the forties, um, and, you know, to me, it seems like these are the prime years, you know, that I've got, I've got uh, incredible um, resource of, of knowledge that I've accumulated, you know, over, over 40 years. I feel like I'm now, only now starting to open my mind 
to all these other possibilities. I, I feel like I've become more and more of a geek um, as I've as I've gone along and listening to lectures and so on and so forth. Is this this curious curiosity factor starting to show up? What 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 can I expect from your opinion? Well, that's one thing I try and touch on in, in this book, Better with Age, because there are things that can change and actually make our lives more rewarding as we get older. And many people think about aging in negative ways, but um, life can be very satisfying, especially when we reflect back on our lives, what we've done, and what we still want to accomplish uh, in our 60s, 70s, and 80s. And in fact, levels of happiness tend to reach an all-time low <laughs> right around midlife, you know, 40, 45. So I think some things we can oh, look no. forward to. <laughs> well, both oh, oh no and oh good, I have something to look forward to because if you're 40, 45 and you're thinking I'm not that happy even though I have a great job and a family and a house and all the things that should make me happy, you might realize that your emotional regulation might get actually better so that you appreciate these things even if you things get even more complicated in your life. You might be better at figuring out what's important in that in your 50s and 60s, you might actually be happier if you take care of your body and your mind. So that's really why I wrote this book is to talk about the psychology of successful aging. And it's not intended for people who are 70, 80 necessarily. They might have even mastered some of these things. It's intended for people who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s who are trying to understand, you know, I'm trying to forget some things. I'm not as good at multitasking as I used to be. Well, you know, I still feel like I'm in great shape, but I put on a few pounds. And so I really try and emphasize that physical exercise balance. And I I have, you know, a whole um, kind of checklist of things that you should be on the lookout for and things that you can do so that as you get older and even when you're young, you can start thinking about these things, whether it's learning a second language, being stimulated in your life, you know, really value social connections, staying in touch with friends because, when you retire, even though we never seem to have enough time to stay in touch, those are the people who know you the best. So I really tell people that, you know, to summarize, I talk about the ABCs of successful aging. And A has to do with attitudes. And oftentimes our culture doesn't really value older age. Um, And so our attitudes about aging can influence how we age. If you think positively about aging, Um, You might be more inclined to do things that are healthier, to walk, to engage with other people. Um, And that's really one message in my book, Better With Age, The Psychology of Successful Aging. I hope reading about inspiring older adults and the latest research on successful aging can show people at any age what to expect, what to hopefully enjoy if you age well, as we're all getting older. So in terms of these ABCs, A is really attitude. It's our attitude about aging that matters. And if you have a negative attitude about aging, you're more inclined to then not take care of yourself because you expect bad things to happen as you get older. And then these things can happen to you. So it is a bit circular. Um, So changing these attitudes, even at an early age, if you have role models of people who've aged well, if you understand that even if you're old and you have aches and pains, you're still in a position to be physically active, that can be incredibly important. So A is attitude, but also, as we talked about, staying active and also adapting because there's going to be a lot of change in our life as we get older. Um, and so you'll, you'll have to change and be aware that, you know, life is not all about routines. And B is balance. And we talked also about balance. Physical balance is incredibly important. And training balance, being aware of potential falls. 
but also balance in our life. And I think in midlife, we're especially focused on our jobs, our careers, our family. We always feel like we never have enough time for anything. So achieving this balance can be challenging. And I think as we get older, we have a better opportunity to, to understand how to balance our life. Maybe we realize we want to retire and spend more time with our family, but then maybe we realize spending more time with our family is not what we, <laughs> we're not going to devote all of our time. We need a hobby or we need some, something that gives us value. So finding that balance becomes important and it's something we probably struggle with our, our entire lives. And then C is being connected and being connected to the, the people we love and care about, but also the things, the activities that we love and care about and value. And I think if you're passionate about something, if you're connected to something, whether it's a volunteer group, a pet, traveling, you know, that can really give you a lot of um, reward. And so finding what is important to connect to and also what things you want to disconnect from, whether it's junk food, whether it's bad habits, whether it's people who you don't enjoy being around. It's a, it's a question of selectivity and kind of connecting with the things you really think are important to you. Attitudes, balance, and connections is, 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 is uh, you know, some of the summary of, of, of the primary um, contributors to, to consider, explore, to think about as, as aging well, um, you know, how to make it, how to age, you know, better um, and the things to think about. Absolutely. So it's a challenge and it's something I struggle with. And uh, I'm always interested to hear how people age well, but also how people feel like they, you know, the things that they can do to age better. And I think there's never too early or late a time to start thinking about um, how to age well. It's interesting because to, to, to me, when I start thinking about those and, and I think about my clients and certainly think about myself, you know, I, the, the, the more connected I get and, and I think I can comfortably say in the last, probably only in the last few years where I've really consciously uh, started to actively try and connect and, and, and not only just connect, but appreciate those connections kind of sit and enjoy those connections like basking in the connections enjoying people's time and 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 um kind of reflecting in those moments where you know we're all sitting there we can have a laugh or you know we want to spend time with one another our families are coming together you know maybe it's with with, with my children being born um that connectivity has become more and more important um uh to me you know the other side, the attitudes, uh, I think they shift as well uh, about, you know, we ask these big, huge existential questions, what's it all about? Mm -hmm. um, but I like this idea of, of, you know, attitudes around aging, you know, there's, there's almost uh, like a, uh, like aging has always been this bad thing. It's like, you know, how old are you turning? Oh gosh, you know, you're becoming an old man. You know, right. and when we do and that, and that's kind of all lovely and jokey. Um, but at the same time, that can be a sensitive space for many if their attitudes are poor to, to, to those, um, depending on how much, you know, emphasis we put on a particular number. Um, and, and, and balance is obviously uh, uh, that, that never ending juggling, juggling act. And, and maybe also, you know, the balance of how we even, measure that how, how we judge that is 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 do we get stressed 
when it's imbalanced um, or do we kind of accept it and we roll with it and, and it doesn't cause us so much angst or grief or anxiety. We, we kind of go, yeah, that's just a part of life and I don't have to kind of worry about it being so-called unbalanced because don't even know what unbalance is, so to speak. Yeah, I think attitudes play a big role as a psychologist. That's my approach, at least. I know there's a lot of biology and there's sometimes people think, you know, it's all about genetics. But I think attitudes can play a very big role because our, when we think about aging, we can think of all the negative aspects. But interestingly, after the age of 40, most people don't really feel their age. And in fact, most people report subjectively feeling 20% younger than their actual biological age. So it's almost like we have to remind ourselves, oh, yeah, I guess I am older. When I look in the mirror, I guess I don't have as much hair as I used to. But we don't hold that self-opinion. You know, maybe when we have aches and pains, we say, oh, it's due to aging. But we don't think of ourselves as, you know, as that older person. So that disconnect between how we view ourselves versus how we actually are uh, is important, but it could be for a good reason that if we're, if we feel younger, we'll act younger. We'll feel like we can exercise. Um, we don't subscribe to the stereotypes that we might have about aging. Either that or we change those stereotypes about aging because these days people are living longer. Um, there's a lot we can do to age well. And so I, I've really tried to emphasize that attitude can can play a big role in terms of how we approach aging, how we think about aging. And there's a lot we do have control over that allows us to age well. There's one other topic that I wanted to raise or item that I wanted to raise that uh, uh, I wanted to leave to the end because I know it's always a complex one, um, but it's a common one that people ask is around uh, how about food? You know, what what does food do with, uh, you know, memory and 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 with this aging, you know, component, it, it seems to be, you know, everywhere where, where we look, there's, you know, the next, the next uh, superfood or some some sort of, you know, nonsense get going on. Uh, has your lab, has your research, has as the research that you've read on with your colleagues, uh, uh, spoken much about um, this connection? And, and and if so, what are some small little things we can kind of, you know, without getting too too carried away? we can kind of be aware of? No, it's a great question. And I think we're all concerned about, you know, how we eat and, you know, both weight gain, but also, um, you know, what is the next superfood? And I think the truth is, I, I talk about this in my book, it's a bit of a moving target. We don't know what is going to be the next superfood because the truth is most of these foods don't make that much of a difference, whether it's, you know, blueberries or pomegranate juice, um, if you're eating a balanced diet, that's probably important. Uh, coffee, we don't know if the correlation between coffee and memory is often there, but I wouldn't advise people to drink coffee if they're not drinking coffee. So I think, you know, the nutrition is a bit of a moving target. We used to think, you know, eat egg whites, and now it says, no, eat the yolk, or it used to be like, you know, <laughs> used to be don't eat meat, now it's eat the protein, avoid the hamburger bun. So, <laughs> you know, I think if you look at this, it's almost like, well, if we don't know, having balance is probably good. It's like your stock portfolio, a little bit of everything is probably a safe way to do it. There might be some breakthroughs here or there, but the truth is, um, I think that you're going to have bigger effects by eating a balanced diet, eating carefully, eating mindfully, and then, you know, kind of gear up on some physical exercise to, to burn off any mistakes you might make if you overeat, if you eat the wrong things. So, 
it's almost like you shouldn't get too stressed out about it because there's a lot you can do. Um, you know, some, sometimes there's a link between red wine and memory, but that effect is not very large and it's certainly not due to the alcohol in, in red wine. It's due to some small ingredient that you could get in a capsule and probably won't make so much of a difference. So I'm hesitant to suggest multivitamins and, you know, if your doctor suggests it, then maybe it's useful. But in this, you know, if you're living in a, a world or a country where you can have a fairly balanced diet, I don't see, um, you know, one superfood is going to make a big difference for your memory. Well said, I think. I think that, that, that moving target is, is a lovely uh, summary of, of, you know, the literature just keeps moving and changing and, and, and uh, it's in some sense foolish to, to point, point the finger at anything. And um, most of us probably have a, a reasonable idea of what, what a reasonable, balanced, you know, uh, food intake might look like. And, you know, we can kind of just keep, fluffing around with that and, and we'll get it reasonably, reasonably. I, th okay. I think so. I think so. Alan, can you tell us uh, uh, where people can get in contact, where people can find out about your new book, uh, Better With Age, The Psychology of Se Successful Aging? Absolutely. It's available on amazon.com um, and it's, uh, it's a summary of a lot of the research I've talked about today, the, kind of the latest research on successful aging as well as case studies, you know, people who have aged well and what they have to say about what tips they would give about aging well. And some of the tips they give certainly kind of fit with the science of successful aging, but some of them don't. And I think that leaves the avenue open that there's a lot we don't know about aging. Um, and so I'm always excited to hear from people who have some insights and ideas about what it means to age well. And this book is meant for people of all ages. I think, you know, if you're 70, 80, 90, some of these things you'll know about, or if you don't know, it might make sense, or maybe it's something to think about. But it's really geared towards people who are of any age, you know, 40, 50, 60, who, you know, haven't spent time thinking about it, but maybe are concerned that their memory is changing, or they see their parents' memory changing. They haven't thought about balance or falls until someone experiences a fall. So I really hope this book has the potential to help people maybe even before they need the help to become more aware that we do have control over how well we age. And I must say, I, I, I can definitely go out and recommend a book like this because I think we need to be thinking more about this. We need to be considering more of these ideas. We need to go out and chew the fat on these, on these uh, concepts because if, if we just kind of leave it to chance, you know, we're not being active in uh, the direction we want to push our life, and I think I think the, the the title is a beautiful title, you know, about successful aging. You know, this this is about going out and, and looking at how do I do it well, um, you know, and how do I want to go out and you know squeeze the juice out of these years um, because it's not about having a you know a great uh, early life and then there's this decline. There's there's change in life and and let's go out and get the most out of you know every year possible. Um, and there's, I think, some beautiful uh, advantages that older age gives us. So why not go out and uh, start thinking about this? So, um, yeah, great, uh, uh, great speaking with you uh, and, and really looking forward to finding out more about, uh, you know, your, your lab and the, the work that comes out. It's, it's great to have people like you who can inform, you know, the, the rest of us as to what to go out and do, the, you know, the A's, B's and C's. Um, beautifully packaged as well. So appreciate your time, um, Professor Castell. And uh, I 
want to just also, uh, you know, wish you, wish you some successful aging yourself. Thank you. I'm sure I'll need it. It was great being on your show. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.